listening to the Texas Horn Podcast. I am your host, Chris Schlock, the editor-in-chief of the Texas Horn, and I'm joined today by our content editor, Jackson Paul, and our fellow contributor to the Texas Horn, Zach Springer. And we are here today because we were having such an interesting conversation last weekend at our friend's graduation dinner over Zach's piece, The Three Rivers, that we thought, you know, this would make a good podcast. And so here we are. And um, Zach, um, would you like to give a brief summary of the three rivers before we discuss it for those who haven't read it yet which you totally should as it's on the website as of tuesday yes it just got published so all right yes uh my name is zach springer though my full name is william zachary springer and i'm a first year philosophy student at the university of texas at austin and i recently wrote a piece called the three rivers it actually incidentally it started from a conversation that i was having in uh, a dorm hallway with Jackson Paul, the content editor here at the Horn, <laughs> and th- many weeks ago. And the premise of the paper is pretty simple. Uh, it, it's the thesis of it is just that the modern right wing isn't really a coherent single made up of a coherent single tradition, but rather it's made up of three distinct, independent, and even contradictory or mutually exclusive metaphysical rivers or traditions in contrast to that is that are all only united in so far as they oppose the left wing which i see as being a singular united river or tradition mm-hmm. right so the different iterations of leftism i see as different expressions of the same sort of metaphysics uh, yes. which have a shared view of, I would say, human anthropology, religion, history, et cetera. These views between uh, anarcho-communists and Marxist-Leninists are going to be shared, whereas on the right, there's much more diversity, right? And the main kind of principle of unity is opposition to the left wing. Right. So this is this is the paper, and I also contend that the uh, river, the the kind of American conservative movement or conser- conservatives or right-wingers in general should s- sort of uh, go for, as it, as it were, would be the what I call the traditionalist river. And the three mm-hmm. rivers, by the way, are the liberal river, uh, the futurist river, mm-hmm. which I'll clarify that in a moment, and then the traditionalist river. Right. Um, by futurist, uh, you mean nationalism and fascism, right? Correct. I specifically refer to modern so-called right-wing totalitarian statist ideologies that particularly emerged in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So national socialism, fascism, you could even say phalangism, uh, the Iron Guard movement in Romania, these different totalitarian movements uh, Mm -hmm. that are are right-wing. Yeah, um, why don't you explain what you mean by the uh, liberal river, just because, you know, liberal in our culture often means left wing, so. Yes, this is true. So when I say liberal, I don't speak of liberal as in the popular American political discourse. I'm speaking of liberal in the traditional philosophical sense. So the tradition of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, uh, Thomas Paine, the founding fathers, this, this notion that we are to pursue the... Uh, kind of unrestrained, uncoerced individual and preserve his rights and liberties. And that the main function of the state is pretty much only to protect the inalienable rights and liberties of the individual. Right. And mm-hmm. so this this would be uh, liberalism. And, and I frequently refer to it as being as having kind of a so-called negative vision. Mm-hmm. So so the vision is mainly just of trying to 
kind of bring about and protect this kind of ideal individual, right? Uh, unrestrained from the government, from government coercion. And, and this is how I would define uh, liberalism. As being um, an advocate for liberty in, in short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing I mentioned this past weekend while talking to you about it is some um, Friedrich Hayek, the Austrian economist, uh, pointed out that um, liberalism, of course, used to classical liberalism is what it's now referred to, but it used to be um, something that um, was for liberty until the left not too long ago, I, th- I believe in the early 20th century, appropriated that term and used it um, and used it to make their uh, policies more palatable. Um, and so instead of being called socialists, they would be social liberal Democrats or things like that. And so um, I think it's important to make that distinction. Um, Actually, uh, an interesting point on there. Well, you're right that in America and Europe, the left has kind of, as Project Hayek said, stole the word liberal from us. There are places like Australia where liberal still means right wing. So yes, that is true. And in France, apparently, whenever they discuss economics, when right wing economics or free market laissez-faire economics are called liberal or uh, economics. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I believe on the continent, even liberal in certain contexts refers to continental Europe, uh, mm-hmm. liberal in certain contexts refers to laissez-faire economic system. Yeah. And, and, uh, piggybacking on that, um, couldn't you say that the three rivers of fascism, um, and, uh, liberalism and, um, traditionalism, traditionalism could be more applicable to, um, the European states than to the American states? Because, Fascism historically in America has not really been seen as a right wing. There was a lot of uh, left leaning, left leaning and socialist sympathizers. Yes, and a lot, a lot of sympathizers uh, in America of the who are on the left of of the fascist states. Uh, people praising Mussolini. A lot of journalists doing so. I think even John Dewey, uh, FDR, took some of Mussolini's policies, like the minimum wage. Um, and, uh, and so couldn't you say that the uh, Three Rivers would be uh, only something applicable to Europe and America would be more of two rivers that does not include futurism? So I, it might be easier to map this onto the history of continental Europe. That might be true. Just because in the paper, I sort of, uh, this is maybe implied because I, I say that in, in America, in a highly qualified historical sense, the only kind of politics that are available to us are liberal politics. Yes. And in a certain relative sense, these could be called left wing because historically uh, liberalism was kind of a revolutionary ideology that mm-hmm. supplanted uh, Monarch. yeah, mo- monarchism and these sort of old forms, uh, right? Even of... Um, what, what would it be? Not, not mercantilism, but, but it sort of supplanted the, uh, the previous um, sort of economic systems and like feudalism and things like yeah. that. Um, so, so it might be uh, easier, yeah, to, to, uh, to map it onto. Uh, and also I cite the example of France and France's history and struggles between legitimism uh, or absolutist monarchism, and then also liberalism, and then socialism, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's maybe cleaner in continental Europe, but I say I think that the principles still would apply in America. Uh, so, does, if that answers, I just want question. to clarify something for our readers. You say yes. that America, like the only thing available to us here, are liberal politics, and we kind of talked about this more earlier. And I think what we kind of concluded is like 
even when you get people who wouldn't call themselves liberal, like for instance, traditionalists or um, Marxist, they still are either like really at the margins of no influence or they're kind of influenced by liberal ideas. For instance, even traditional traditionalists might have liberal ideas about like, oh, we can't use the government to fix anything. We have to kind of look to ourselves and to our families and such. And even the Marxists will talk about like, oh, freeing like us from like the, um, to be like true, they'll talk about the self-actualization of the individual freed from the market. So what you're kind of saying is like this idea of liberalism of like the fundamental rights of the individual are so fundamental to American politics. We don't even think about it. Exactly. There's certain, certain ideas that are just taken as givens that we don't even think about that yes, mm -hmm. are taken yeah. for granted. For instance, our, our constitutional liberties, liberal democracy, republicanism, negative human rights, and that negative human rights are a good thing that are to be preserved and protected. Uh, and that the state cannot infringe on them or can try, but that that would be unjust and, and things like this. So yes, it's so ingrained that we don't even, uh, that we don't even think about it. So, uh, yes. Yeah. So, um, I'd actually like to ask you, since you said this is more clear in content of liberalism and when you were talking about the examples of like the futurist revolt, you were talking about like the fascist, um, the Romanian iron guard is that what they're called mm -hmm. yeah etc um but it's actually kind of got me thinking like there's even in europe there's a lot of overlap for instance you get a guy like say uh franco he would at first think he's a uh, futurist because oh fascist dictator but then he kind of talked about going back to tradition and even some of the really more extreme of the futurists like say the uh, national socialists in germany would sometimes talk about going to back to uh, german roots so do you think there is like kind of a relationship between like the futurist or post-liberal river and the pre-liberal river, like kind of a kinship there? Yes. So the, I should clarify something. So one of the major distinctions that I should clarify in the article is that I note that liberalism and futurism and leftism are all decidedly modern ideologies that can be roughly mapped onto the motto of the French Revolution, right? Liberty, egality, or equality, and fraternity. Uh, futurism roughly corresponding to fraternity uh, equality roughly corresponding to leftism and then liberty roughly corresponding to liberalism. Um, and so, and this is a, an, an idea that I've, that I've heard before, uh, but yes. So concerning the relationship between futurism and traditionalism, historically, it has been true that the, I suppose, uh, kind of, uh, the pre the pre-liberal or pre-modern traditionalist river and the, uh, modern futurist river have politically aligned with each other uh, against the forces of liberalism and leftism in the cases of particularly Francoist Spain and the Spanish Civil War, uh, as well as in Nazi Germany, uh, the, uh, there were coalitions that were made between conservatives and national socialists and in various uh, other contexts, like I, I believe also Portugal, what is it, uh, Salazar's Portugal and, and things like this. So the relationship would be basically that they come together because they see Bolshevism or leftism as such a existential threat that is such a, there's such a threat to their culture and religion and way of life that they come together and often um, incite coups or historically, at least in the case of the Spanish Civil War, incited a coup in order to uh, kind of preserve their um, their way of life. But that isn't to justify, however, the, uh, the futurist river. So one critical distinction that I'll make is that even though they did tend to uh, come together and form uh, coalitions, the problem is that I would say that the futurists uh, 
are often take a revolutionary kind of disposition and the way that they approach things. Uh, whereas with the traditionalists, they seek to preserve organic and stable traditions that are authentically handed down through time. The futurists try to create new traditions or a new understanding of the previous tradition, right? So you see this, I believe, especially in, uh, uh, what is it, with Mussolini and uh, fascism in Italy, national socialism in Germany, even kind of sort of phalangism, though it's a little different because you could argue that phalangism is more uh, trying to preserve an authentic Spanish tradition that's come down. But, um, but yes, the, uh, one critical difference is that the, the disposition of, uh, futurists tends to be much more revolutionary. And that's actually interesting that you focus on the Spanish civil war because there it's not really a contradiction of your thesis, but it's kind of an exception where you normally talk about the three liberal or the three rivers mm -hmm. fighting against the, um, left, but in Spanish civil war, it's more complicated because you have two of the rivers kind of having in the futurists and the traditionalists in an alliance of convenience convenience against the third river which has made its own alliance of convenience with the bolsheviks with the republican side but i guess my main point is like so you would think that you know franco you kind of talk about you kind of say i noticed you were a bit uncomfortable trying to put him in one river or the other so you think that's kind of like part of the alliance of convenience or yes with uh with franco it's difficult because of the way that his coalition worked he actually suppressed the distinctives of kind of the manifestations of the futurist river and also the traditionalist river, right? So one iteration maybe of the traditionalist river might be the Carlists who were the monarchist kind of contingent who fought with the nationalists. And then on with the futurist manifestation, you have the phalangists. Both of these with their intellectual traditions and their ideologies were suppressed after Franco took power and consolidated uh, all of his power in himself, basically. He, he shut down all of the parties that formed the core coalition and suppress them um, after he had won the war. And so the, I would, I, Franco is difficult because maybe it's difficult to uh, pin him down as like, in like a precise ideologue, the closest would probably be the, perhaps the, it, the futurist river. I don't know, because Franco and Salazar are in a different league, I would say from Hitler and Mussolini um, because they're a, uh, what is it? Because again, they're trying to preserve, or not they, but they're taking advantage of this desire to preserve kind of the Catholic cultural heritage, which has been handed down, which is threatened by the liberal Republicans and the socialists. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 difficult to say. It's not too clean. Um, this is a good uh, example, though, of a tension, though, within within the thesis. So maybe he's like hybrid between the two. I mean, real quick, I also know that Franco is a different league than you know Hitler and Mussolini because like he wasn't nearly as evil. Like he didn't say, "Oh, we're going to you know genocide millions of people." So like, he, yeah, he was not not a very good guy, but definitely not in the same league. Uh, yeah. But um, this actually, or sorry, I forgot my question. If you had oh sure, um, so you mentioned a positive vision in your article. Uh, can you go into more detail about that? Yes. So one of the critiques that I make in my article is that uh, the right wing these days, or American conservatism, which those are not the same sort of thing, and this is an important distinction that I need to tease out more, uh, that I need to think about more at length, the, the distinction between conservatism and, and the right wing writ large. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's maybe for, for another time. Uh, but the I speak of this idea of a positive vision because it seems that uh, on the right or within American conservatism, there is this pull towards a focus on uh, kind of preservation of negative liberty, preservation of the Constitution, 
and the rights of the individual, small government, these kinds of things. And it's all about negating, right? Mm -hmm. Negating government power, negating right. the left wing, right. negating these different things, fighting against these things, right? Mm -hmm. And it's and so there is no what I call positive vision kind yeah. of left, uh, which is to say that uh, modern American conservatism seems to have aligned itself or is aligned with what I call the liberal river. The liberal river doesn't really provide a positive vision for how the world ought to be or the closest that it comes to this is like, yeah. what is it? The individual free from all constraints and externalities and things like this that are deemed to be oppressive. But the, uh, yeah, the, the idea is just that there, we need some vision of the good, right? Yes. Uh, within conservatism and on the right wing. And I feel or sense that this is lacking in the contemporary American, in contemporary American conservatism. So we need a vision of, uh, sort of like what uh, Sam was saying in the previous podcast of the, um, what is it, of uh, what is the good life, what is virtue. I, I speak of what is it that makes uh, something worth living and dying for, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. What is basically what, what one really good way of putting this would be the left wing has a historical kind of narrative, right? Um, as does the, uh, the liberal river and as does the the futurist river as does the uh, the traditionalist river and we need kind of a stronger sense of positive kind of narrative of who we are what we live or die for what is good what do we love and why do we seek to protect that which we love mm -hmm. right and and so kind of a going back to what is the good life and these sorts of things does this make sense yes. um yes i agree with most of that but i'll, I'll have to say that um, in the 20th, mid 20th century, um, Frank Meyer, he was a associate editor of the National Review um, and pivotal in the modern conservative um, American movement. And he what he advocated for and what eventually was adopted by you know, Reagan and has become uh, the, the, the modern um, American conservative uh, strain was uh, fusionism which was a fusion of traditional um, social conservatism with economic libertarianism. And so I, I would have to say that there is um, at least some positive vision, but I, I, maybe not to, this, to the degree that you would like. Mm -hmm. um, what do you have to say about that? Do you think that, um, that, that we are missing the mark um, quite a bit? Or would you say, what, what, what would you think about that? So, uh, y yes, I suppose that you could say that this idea of the so socially conservative nuclear family that's yes. just left alone by the big government, or not the big government, but that's left alone and you're in a smaller government kind of situation, that this is ideal, right? So they aren't being coerced by the government unnecessarily and they're just free to live their socially conservative lives, right? It's Christians or whatever have you, right? They can just kind of be left alone with their constitutional liberties, preserved mm -hmm. um and that that's kind of the closest that you kind of get to a positive vision right uh, something like this would you consider like for example um the the drug war that reagan sort of was well, was really in favor of um and you know being pro-life and all would you consider that as part of the um positive vision it could be uh but I mean, it'll kind of help you out here. Like, yeah. even if it's bad policy, that doesn't mean right. like it wasn't aimed there. Because you could argue, oh, the drug war was like a mistake. Right. But the idea that like, um, you could argue that like, oh, we need like 
a drug-free life. Like you can't be living the good life, seeking the true and the beautiful, while you're no, you know shooting up with heroin. Uh, yes, this is this right. is this is true. And I know that Peter Hitchens argues that uh, Britain should be uh, marijuana-free and these sorts of things, and that policy should be pursued in order to maintain this image of kind of. The the ver- there's a notion of a positive vision there, right? With yeah. uh, with uh, advocating for a ban on marijuana in Britain by mm. by Hitchens, that's implicit, and so the same principle would apply here. Yes, I think that you could roughly say that there is some notion of a positive vision, but the problem is that at least today, that notion of positive vision is not strong enough mm-hmm. right there's mm-hmm. no great narrative that people find themselves subscribing to and living and dying for right mm-hmm. so like the futurists took advantage of this because they gave them people a story to live or die for right like this is the glory of the state yeah. the state will last into eternity this is the final good this is the thing for which you shed your blood uh i i think hitler very famously gave a speech concerning how you know the liberals of the weimar republic wanted to give people comfort and leisure and license and so on and people really didn't want this what they really wanted was uh sweat and blood and toil and for something greater Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. and so so there's not really this um like in sorry i'm having a rough time being articulate no i mean i I completely agree with you mussolini said everything in the state nothing outside the state nothing against the state right mm -hmm. there's a there, there definitely was a glorification of the state. Yes, but but my bottom line here is that the there is no sense of a positive uh, narrative that we are all kind of a part of and participating in. And I think yeah. that traditionalism provides this because one of the big notions within Burkean uh, conservatism is that we have a tradition which has been handed down to us, which we are almost obligated to preserve, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we have a connection or a tie between those who've come before us those who are living now and those who will come and it's for the sake of the good of the dead the the living and the future generations that we preserve these traditions right uh and these customs and so yeah uh actually or like i actually want to raise like delve a bit deeper into something you said Mm -hmm. you mentioned that like the futurists took advantage or you're kind of saying like first there's like no positive vision or not strong enough positive vision Mm -hmm. and second you talk about how like the futurists were um took advantage of that and so i mean we talked earlier about how or before the podcast about how like after world war ii there was really no futurist movement in america because what little like proto-fascism there had been everyone's gonna like oh you know didn't really work for europe not gonna work for us so then you get this big alliance from like um the fusionists with people like William F. Buckley, who were both of the liberal and of the pre-liberal stream, where those two worked together, kind of pushed out the lo- the futurist fascist river and fought the left kind of with just those two first two. Mm-hmm. Then you talk about how like, you know, or we there's been a lot of talk about how like that Reagan consensus is dead and how the first two rivers are like no longer enough. So do you think there's a link there between what you say, there's no more positive vision and what we're seeing of like, the alliance between the first two rivers is breaking down, and then you get people who are calling themselves post-liberals again, people like yeah. even nominal traditionalist people at first things, and of course we're seeing a new rise of nationalism. So do you think there's a link between like this lack of tradition and this rise of the third river again? Uh, y- yes, I think so. Yes, because people are trying to find, again, a narrative mm-hmm. that they can participate in and uh, that 
um, that they see as being meaningful, right? So, so the issue here is that of atomization and nihilism. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of one of the consequences of this overemphasis on maybe the, the negative or just merely like negating things and negating against government coercion and so on, is that if you do that, but don't have along with it some vision of what the good life is, yeah. then you end up in this place where you have these atomized individuals and their lives are meaningless. And you, then you're given to nihilism. And then nihilism kind of produces a desire for like, I need to find something to live for. And yeah. that could ver that very A quick, cause greater than myself. Right, a cause greater than myself. And that very quickly leads people to more radical ideologies. And so that could very quickly lead to say leftism which yeah. provides a vision in a narrative or futurism which provides a visionary in a narrative especially if your traditional institutions which have been handed down to you have kind of decayed such as the mm -hmm. church right and in and if it seems like these more traditional modes aren't really available then people will go to other things so couldn't you say that uh, a lack of or no, not a lack, a, a need for a national vision uh, of, of, of the good, the true, and the beautiful is it, that that stems from um, a lack of community and meaning and purpose and belonging that you would have at your own communities. And so um, the, the fascist movements of the past were playing on that atomization. And so what we really don't need is a, a national vision, but more of a, of um, more, more participation in your community and um isn't that isn't that more important that localism rather than uh, the nationalism? Yes, yes, uh, um, yes. But I suppose one thing I would say is that you can have sort of maybe a broader sense of vision just generally say among American conservatives, but that this vision can manifest differently in different localities depending on the traditions there, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So. What what do I mean? Um, conservatism could maybe look differently depending on where it's, uh, how should I say, kind of the principles of just desiring to preserve the traditions and institutions which have been handed down to you. That's going to aesthetically look different depending on where you are because different places have different traditions yeah. and uh, different institutions. So yes, but yes, they're, they're, uh, what is it? it? It isn't so much that we need, say like, a united national vision in favor of our nation state. It's more that we need a vision of the good life that is conducive to uh, and, in, and tied to the locality and the community, right? Because that's yeah. where you are immediately. Um, yeah, um, to change course a little bit, um, you, you mentioned the, um, when you were talking about the left uh, river, you're mentioning the self-realization of the uh, autonomous individual. Could you... Um, explain that better? Yes. So what I mean by that is that there is a desire to be totally free from all, all distinction in, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to put this in, in simpler terms. Uh, what I mean by the totally autonomous individual is the free, is the individual who uh, desires to be and is free from any possible constraint or label mm -hmm. or oppression or anything it at all right right, right. so so uh, so what this means is like freedom from distinction from kind of these different like institutions, even freedom from kind of your family like these different. 
Okay, I'm not putting this very clearly. I'm sorry. Are you saying no. freedom from any external obligation on yes, you? Yes. like the yes. only person you're answerable is yourself, not to your um, parents, not to your pastor, not really to the government. Yes, yes. That, that's yes. That's exactly that's exactly what I'm uh, what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. This actually like is interesting. I think that's like a very dominant strain within leftism. And one of the reasons, like, do you remember the big controversy over Obama's Life of Julia commercials where it's like, oh, yeah. this person completely independent and atomized, but she was also like dependent on the government. That's what, that is where I think you need to make the distinction between liberal freedom and leftist freedom because leftist freedom is kind of supported by the government where the government does everything for you. So no, you have no social obligations to your family, to your church, to your community, et cetera. Whereas liberals say you have like freedom from doing this. So we're not going to force you, but you're kind of on your own to like figure out your obligations yourself. Yes, it, it is. Al it's almost as if within leftism, there's an um, and I talk about this a little bit with the uh, this idea of positive human rights, which mm -hmm. tends to emerge on the left. But yes, it, it does seem very much that uh, the uh, the source of your self-actualization or full realization of your potential comes from the state within leftism or the collective. Whereas mm -hmm. within liberalism, that's not the case. It's just that you're, yes, you're free, to, you're free from government coercion, but you, you need uh, to, it's through the, your own kind of individual ability and also through your local community and these kinds of things that uh, you have the things necessary, which are, which are necessary for your flourishing, right? So within leftism, the flourishing, the hu the vision of human flourishing stems from the state and the collective and the collective will and the will of the state. Whereas within liberalism, it would be more uh, human flourishing emerges at its best organically through community life and individuals mm -hmm. interactions within their communities. But when your community is destroyed, then you basically set yourself up for this uh, increasing dichotomy or dialectic between the atomized individual detached from all mediating in institutions, right? Mm -hmm. No family, no roots, no country, right? And then the state on the other hand, yeah. right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so basically, so one way of maybe putting this is that it's almost as if what's happened in America is that you have a house, the house being liberalism, and then the foundation, the foundation being traditional kind of Christianity or a traditional sort of maybe framework. Mm -hmm. But then the foundation has come out from underneath the house. And so now all we're left with is this house that's built on sand that's slowly decaying and eroding with no foundation, because liberalism is contingent on uh this notion of kind of a traditionalist maybe vision that has now died and been supplanted by a vision or dialectic between just the individual and, and the state. Because again, the mediating institutions have eroded. I actually um, really like that analogy of the house with um, traditional conservatism as the foundation and liberal conservatism as the house. Because on the one hand, you need like strong traditions and work for freedom to work. Like if people aren't going to be virtuous, then you can't talk about them being free because they'll just use their freedom to like sabotage society. And you'll have to have like a strong man come in to kind of beat them in submission. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like if you have traditionalism without liberalism, well, you've got to solve the concrete without a house to live on. So you kind of like you've got a problem there where traditionalism exists, but it almost in some ways exists for the sake of having liberalism. Like virtue exists so that you might be free if that makes sense it's just an interesting point of neuroanalogy we're like they're uh, one of them is kind of useless without the other yeah well i suppose that what i'm trying to do with the analogy is describe what's historically occurred as a phenomena i don't know that that is necessarily 
ideal, but it's just that that's what the house analogy is just to describe what the reality of what seems to have happened historically. Yeah. And that's what uh, Tocqueville talked about in, in um, his democracy in America um, book. And um, he said, basically, um, one of his fears was the, um, yeah, the, the dissolution of mediating institutions. And so you just have the individual in the state and that could lead to a sort of soft tyranny where the people think they're in control because they vote for who's in the, in the government, but they're complete, um, complete submission to the government and um, they rely completely on the government for everything that they need. And um, he said that's a problem as well as hyper-individualism because in democracy, um, you're, you're, you care more about, um, you care more about your, yourself and your own interests than you do, than you would under aristocracy where you have actual ties to um, those below you and those above you. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that, I'm, I'm glad that you point that out. Yeah. One, uh, one note that I'd like to make is that I speak of uh, metaphysics. And so very quickly, I guess I'd like to go through kind of the ends of the different rivers and kind of what I'm trying to get at. Right. And so part of the deal with metaphysics and what makes metaphysics metaphysics is uh, identity and what makes the identity of the thing of a thing. And so uh, I go through in the paper and I describe how is an individual identified in relation to these different rivers, right? So in the mm -hmm. leftist river, the individual is uh, defined kind of by the uh, collective will, but also by himself. Within the liberal river, the uh, I would contend that the individual is largely defined by himself. And then if you have those mediating institutions, those, but if you don't have them, then that's also something that can happen. Even if you do and, have the meeting and mediating institutions, you're still kind of defined by yourself because the whole part of liberalism is you choose your institutions. Like mm -hmm. you choose to um, be a member of your church. You're not forced by the government right. to be so. So even when you're part of an institution, it's the self that said these institutions are good. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, very good point. Um, the, so yes, for the, uh, Yes, within the leftist river, it's the individual is defined by the self and by the collective. Within the liberal river, it's by the self. And then through the futurist river, it's the state exclusively who defines the individual, mm -hmm. right? Because nothing precedes the state, going back to your Mussolini quote from earlier. Yeah. And then lastly, the tradition within the traditionalist river, the individual is defined by his relationships. So first and foremost, his relationship to God, his relationship to his family, his friends, his community, his place, etc. Right? Because for all of human history, a man has been defined by his uh, his geography, his ethnicity, his religion, his culture, and all of these things correlate. Right? So to be Serbian, to be uh, Roman, to be um, these different, I mean, mm -hmm. Roman's more complicated, but to be Iranian, Saudi Arabian, th these things have uh, different ethnic, national, and religious ties and correlations. And we as Western democratic liberals have kind of forgotten this reality of human nature and history, right? Because we're so uh, uprooted. That actually reminds me of an interesting theory I read about. I can't for the life of me remember who wrote about it in, Na in National Review like a few weeks ago, where the author basically argued that um, the reason why we have Western individualism is Christianity. Where like before then, you'd be a member of the Greek city-state. So for instance, if you're an Athenian, you are um, like, and suppose you're like a member, like a citizen, then that is who you are. Like you're not um, individual or you're not like an individual. You're not like a per particular person you just like are kind of the sum of like your relationships and your duty to the state but then of course christianity by like recognizing individual souls as things that needed to be saved and like loved was like oh yes these souls are real things that existed whereas 
beforehand if you like try to be individualistic and like not just just be in society then you know they put you to death like socrates right mm-hmm. but um actually the, and this reminds me of but like the flip side of this is on the one hand christianity recognized the individual but on the other hand it by recognizing the individual it made possible a lot of our modern problems for instance in ancient greece you never read in like the alien like and then achilles got achilles got depressed because he was like feeling that life was useless and he didn't know what his goal was nor do you read like and then socrates was like yeah but like i've just been feeling like i'm not connected to anyone the way we do in modern life so i think there's kind of a flip side there mm-hmm. yeah yes. um I'm unfortunately going to have to end it right there. Um, Zach, um, before we go, is there any other brilliant article ideas that you have that you might want to tease before you start publishing it? I'll be uh, teasing them for a while because it takes forever <laughs> to get these things out. Yeah, I, yeah, I have to meditate for a while before I write. Uh, sure. So I have two article ideas that were actually uh, – yeah, I yeah two, two article ideas roughly. I, I have an article idea concerning uh, – uh, sort of hermeneutics and how we interpret history and why that matters. So why it matters to have a hermeneutic that is in continuity and in, in an unbroken continuity specifically, right? And that sounds complicated, but I'll maybe explain later once I write it. And then uh, the uh, the second one would be this notion of that's maybe more um, ambitious would be this notion of history as being characterized by a decay over time where value systems are progressively uh, destroyed, right? And then the terminus of this would be just like post-leftist nihilism. And that, seems, and that seems to be the, uh, the trend, right? So like first the authority of the church is supplanted and then God and then like, uh, what is it? The, um, the nation and eventually these different distinctions and value systems are destroyed um, over time by the forces of modernity and decay. So anyway, yeah, sounds cheery. And and interesting. Um, So Zach, thank you for sitting down with us. This was a great conversation. Um, And uh, for those who don't know, go check out thetexaswar.com and uh, we'll see you next time.